Hello and welcome to episode 109 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I am Beth. (laughs) Good to know you. (laughs) Yes, I am. All righty. Well, we're going to cover New York. I have the true crime. Beth, you have the paranormal and the drink. Tell us about it. Okay. Well, before we jump into the cocktail this week, I have two announcements. One, I wanted to give a shout out and say thank you to our listeners, David and Holly. They both purchased us cocktails this week. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you want to buy us a cocktail, there's going to be a link in the description of this episode as well as on our socials. There's different ways you can buy us one. But thank you to David and Holly. Thank you. How much fun is that? So the cocktail. Oh, wait, I said two announcements. Announcements. (laughs) The second announcement is going to be a quick rundown on a giveaway that mom and I are going to be doing. If you go on iTunes and you leave us a review, take a snapshot of that and email it to us or message it to us, or even just send us what your name is on iTunes, and you're going to be entered into a raffle for a goodie from us. All right. Another fun thing. Yes. So go on there, leave us a review. We're hoping to get some momentum built up there on our iTunes, and either send us your screen name or send us a snapshot of the review you left us, and thanks. We'll be drawing the name on June First, So you have until June 1st to get us those snapshots or your name that's on iTunes and we will be in contact with you if you win. All right. Okay. So anyway, I'm drinking. I am drinking a pirate's booty. Oh, that's fun. You know, I teach junior high drama and we are doing treasure island so your pirate booty is going along with the theme that seems to be occupying my mind right now (laughs) pirates 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 and that has nothing to do with new york i understand i think we've kind of swayed away from a state drink (laughs) unless we find a really good one but this has to deal with my story okay i think the theme drinks are are fun also i think so and it kind of gives us a little more leeway more options, yeah, for sure. Plus, we can we get to be really creative how we tie it in. <laughs> I mean, we try, right? <laughs> so I found this recipe on seductioninthekitchen.com. All right. And we've got a lot of rum in this cocktail. And it's very good. And I think you're really going to like it because of what's mixed in there. So it's one and a half ounces of a spiced rum, three-fourths ounce of a coconut rum, three ounces of pineapple juice, one ounce of cranberry juice. Mm. Okay, so these next portions I didn't add into my cocktail because oh, you'll understand why. A fourth teaspoon of edible gold glitter <laughs> and edible and an edible gold leaf for garnish. So, y'all know we don't really do the whole garnishing thing. We don't make our drinks look too purty. We just enjoy them. That would em. look really pretty though. All the pictures are gorgeous. Yeah. But I'm sorry. <laughs> Isn't going to happen. Oh. You add in a cocktail shaker, the pineapple juice, the cranberry juice, and both of the rums. And then you add in the edible gold glitter, if that's what you're doing. 
add in some ice, shake it around, pour the drink into a tall glass, and then garnish with your edible gold leaf. Where the hell do you get one of those anyway? I was just thinking, you know what? I really want to meet the listener who has gold glitter and gold leaf in their cabinet ready to use. That's the person I want. Just ready to go. That's the person I want to know. Take a picture of the cocktail and send it to us and we'll post it on our socials for this week's episode because my cocktail picture that I post is not going to be this pretty. (laughs) Maybe that's what we should do is we should use the listeners pictures of their cocktails. Oh, I think that's a great idea. So whoever has that gold leaf, you have the golden ticket to be posted (laughs) on our socials. So I guess this... Well, this website actually gives links to Amazon for Pharaoh's gold luxury cake dust and a genuine edible gold leaf. So you got it on Amazon, man. You can get everything on Amazon nowadays. Everything. Absolutely everything. Yep. Well, I cannot wait to see how the pirate booty ties in with your paranormal. And by the way, it's really tasty. (laughs) I don't think I'd ever think, I don't think I'd ever think, wow, that sounds intelligent, Beth. <laughs> I don't know if I'd ever c- thought about combining cranberry juice and, and pineapple juice in a cocktail before. And I wouldn't have thought of putting uh, cranberry juice in with rum. Mm-mm. So there you but go. But it's tasty. All right. Got to try it. Plus, we got the cocktail this week was bought for us. So, hey. Thank you, Holly and David. All right. Are we ready for the torso killer? I am sitting back. Got my pirate's booty in hand. (laughs) All right. Let's go to 42nd Street, or what is also known as The Deuce in New York. There's theaters, shops, restaurants, hotels, and Ripley's Believe It or Not, as well as buildings such as the United National Headquarters, Chrysler Building, the Grand Central New York, New York Public Library, Bryant Park, Port Authorities, and Times Square. Now, have you been there? I've been to a lot of those places. And you've been on 42nd Street. And the thing that really stuck out to me was the Ripley's Believe It or Not. All those historical buildings. And that's the one that stuck (laughs) out. Well, I mean... I'm not hating on it, but it was just a really cheesy place to go. We had a lot of red wine in Little Italy, and then we went to the Ripley's Believe It or Not. And we believed a lot. Let me just put it that way. (laughs) I have never been there, but it looks like the deuce is the place to go. Yeah, especially with Times Square. Exactly. Now, this is like the center, I guess, of New York, and it has a lot of history. In the 40s and 50s, part of the street housed jazz clubs, theaters. It was the entertainment district of New York. In the 1960s and 70s and 80s, it was the center of the sex industry. Now, my darling, I'm going to be mentioning sex a lot in this episode. (laughs) I do not want to embarrass you, but it kind of has to do all about sex. Oh, boy. Take a gulp. Be forewarned. There you go. Go back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s on The Deuce. Think Dante's Inferno or Sodom and Gomorrah. You kind of get the picture? No. Not ringing any bells, Mom. I know I sent you to school. I know I did. (laughs) 
Okay, so Dante's Inferno is the 14th century epic poem, uh, Divine Comedy, written by Dante. And the Inferno is Italian for hell. So it was a bad place. Gotcha. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is from the Bible. And everybody was doing anything they wanted. There was sex. There was a lot of drinking in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God took Sodom and Gomorrah down. But he warned Lot and Lot left with his wife and Sarah. And he said, don't turn back and don't look. And she turned around. She turned to a pillar of salt. Okay. So again, all bad things happened here. (laughs) Got it. Okay. In the mid 60s, a man by the name of Martin Huddis entered the scene. Before him, 42nd Street was lined with prostitutes. And don't correct me on that because I'm going to refer to that in just a little bit. But Huddis spiced things up with X-rated bookstores. Then peep machine shows. And these were like peep shows for a quarter. (laughs) I just thought of Buddy the Elf. (laughs) And if you see peep show, they're not letting you see presents before Christmas. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) No Santa Claus. Bummer. No, no. (laughs) But it was kind of like Christmas for Martin Hodas because they made a lot of money. Oh, guys would like put a quarter in or whatever it was then. I guess a quarter and then only get so far in the peep show. Then he, you know, keep shoving quarters into the machine so he could watch the whole show. Anyway. 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 So those, of course, led to live sex shows and hardcore porn. He was known as the porn king of Times Square. And he wore that name proudly. He would go give interviews and go on talk shows, justifying this expansion, stating that he was only providing what people wanted. Not these people. (laughs) This street was like the epicenter for sex. Any type of sex you wanted could be found on this street, from theaters to live sex acts to sex clubs. It was basically a free-for-all. But with all this pleasure... Also comes a darker side. You have pimps, drugs, predators. And with this being such a lucrative business, you have the mob who owned and ran many of the businesses on the deuce. Okay, so I've set the stage, so to speak. The sex stage, yes. (laughs) She can't get past it. Okay, December 2nd, 1979. The fire department received a call of a fire at the Travel Inn Hotel. The fire was on the fourth floor in room 417. After busting the door down, firemen could see there were bodies on the beds. When firemen ran to try to, like a fireman said that he ran to, it was quoted as saying that he ran to one of the victims and he was going to give the victim mouth to mouth to resuscitate them. Sure. So he went down. Of course, they can't see anything. It was just, you know, very smoky. He bent down, but there was no head. Oh, Gosh. Yeah. Can you imagine how traumatizing? Like, you're already running into a scary situation to go save somebody's life and then there is no head. So both victims did not have heads and they did not have their hands either. Detective Mm. Malcolm Ryman was called to the scene. He stated in the Netflix documentary Crime Scene, The Times Square Killer. Have you seen that yet? No. It was very, very good. Very good. The Times Square Killer? Uh Uh-huh. If you're interested, like, looking more into this whole thing, that is a a wonderful documentary. So much information. Okay. Ryman stated 
that in the 31 and a half years in the NYPD, this is the case that stands out the most. It was, quote, the hotel room from hell. There was nothing in the room to identify the two dead women. In fact, there was absolutely no evidence in the room that a crime had even been committed. Mm. The fire had burned for approximately five minutes. That's it. It looked to detectives that it was set more for attention than to destroy evidence. Besides the two unidentified women, police also found clothes neatly folded in the bathtub. Weird. In two piles. Police had absolutely nothing to go on. When they asked the front desk, they found out that a Carl Wilson checked into room 417 on November 29th and checked out December 2nd. He could not remember what the man looked like, but a woman who stood behind the man when he checked into the hotel did remember him and for some reason paid attention to him. Isn't that mm. weird? And she could really picture him, so the police was, were able to make a composite from that her just, description. That reminds me of the cheerleader in the Kansas story that you shared. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's some people that are just in the They're Kansas. They're so in tune. There's there, there was just something about that situation that they took in all the details. and Right. It's just somebody in the right place. That person is in the right place at the right time, I guess. Yeah. That, that's I could only because... hope that I would be one of those people, but I don't even know that I would. Me too. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't think I'm as aware as I probably should be sometimes. Should be, right. The composite was plastered all over the papers and all up and down 42nd Street. Nothing. Finding a killer in 1970s in Times Square was like finding a needle in a haystack. Well, I'm sure nobody's even going to come forward because they're probably all doing illegal acts as well. Why would they right. come forward? But also there's a lot of death and a lot of violence all along the deuce. Yeah. So it was just one of many cases. On December 11th, so nine days after the fire, detectives had an idea. They would use the clothes that had been found at the scene, and they would dress mannequins in these clothes. They took pictures and sent the photos out everywhere. Finally, a tip came in. How weird. I know, but what a great idea. How brilliantly weird. Now, I'm wondering, because the clothes were in two piles, I'm wondering if the killer put the right clothes in the pile. You put know what I mean? victim A's clothes in this pile yeah. and victim B's Because how else would pile. the police know how to sure. dress the mannequins? A woman named Rose called to say that she recognized one of the outfits. They were the clothes that her roommate, Dita Gadarzi, was wearing when she left the house. Was the victim Dita? Interestingly enough, the victim was identified by an oddly distinct bony prominence on the back of her neck. It had just a different shape. Okay. Doctors' records and earlier x-rays that had been taken matched the distinct shape bones. So this was, in fact, Dita. Dita had initially come from Iran with her parents and brother when she was eight or nine. Her teenage years were difficult. She ran away a lot, got into trouble, and never finished high school. She ran away from home the last time and caught a train to New York. She was very beautiful. Perhaps fame and fortune was awaiting her in the big city by the bay. But as with most young girls that came to New York, she found herself hungry and had no money. 
she turned to prostitution so she could eat and live. As somewhere in her history, Dita had a baby, a little girl that she named Jennifer, but the baby had to be put up for adoption. This baby, now Jennifer Weiss, comes into play later. So kind of tuck her name in the back of your mind. Remember, there were two victims. There were no leads on the second. Could she have worked with Dita? Well, good luck finding that lead. In the area of the travel in alone, so in that just one area, there were around 1,200 prostitutes working oh, the streets wow. just wow. in that area. And I know, I'm going back to this now, I know the correct word is sex workers, not prostitutes, but I wanted to draw your attention to the words. Often when people hear the word prostitute, they equate that to sexual shame, whore, slut, those kind of words. In the late 1980s, there was a push to change the word to sex workers to try to alleviate some of the stigma. Just some added trivia that I found interesting. No, I like that. We have addressed that before. Uh, yes, behind the scenes, it's definitely, oh, shoot, what's the politically correct term for this or that? We never want to offend anybody. So back to the story. The medical examiner found that the two women had been sexually assaulted and had been tortured. They both had cuts and puncture marks all over their bodies. It showed no sign of a struggle. Dita's cause of death was a stab wound through her back and into her lung. The ME estimated that the torture lasted about three days. Oh One victim gosh. was killed a while before the other. This in itself would have been a form of torture for the living victim to watch. Oh, my goodness. And then to lay, I mean, if it maybe was a day or so ahead of her, then she had to oh lay next gosh. to, you know, I mean, just think of that. Horrible. Another interesting fact was that there were no hesitation marks in on the wrists and on the neck. So hesitation marks are if some, well, exactly what they sound like. Somebody mm. were to, let's say, cut a hand off. You know, I mean, you and I would definitely have a bunch of hesitation marks because we would be oh. like touching and pulling back out. And, you know, I mean, we wouldn't Ew, No, we wouldn't even know how to do it. Right. I wouldn't want to ever do it. There were no hesitation marks on this. It was a clean cut. Mm. That just kind of tells you this guy's sick. Tells me that anyway. Profiling was very new at this time, but it was thought that this killer was a psychopath. Uh -huh. You think? <laughs> <laughs> profiler to figure that one I out. I don't need to work for no FBI <laughs> to tell you that. And a sexual sadist. <laughs> Bet hmm. you didn't guess that one, did you? <laughs> Would never guess that one. It was suspected that he read and then watched porn. And when that did not stimulate him anymore, he went on to create his own fantasy. He saw the victims as props in his fantasy, not as people. Ah, oh, sick. On May 12th, 1980, firefighters were called to the Hotel Seville, east of Times Square. The fire was contained to one room at the hotel. A woman was found dead in the room. She had been beaten, tortured, assaulted, and strangled to death. Her head and hands were left intact, but the killer had cut off her breasts and placed them on the bedpost for shock value. The victim was identified as Jean Ann Rayner. She was a sex worker who was trying her hardest to raise enough money to reclaim custody of her little boy. Mm. So, I mean, there's always a backstory, isn't there? 
there's always, yeah. you know, sometimes we're so quick to judge people, but there's always a backstory. Everybody has a story. Yeah, it's sad. The Hotel Seville was not far from where Jean Ann worked. New York had a serial killer on the loose. The name given to him was the Torso Killer. Ugh, As a time that. reference, this was two years after the summer of Sam or oh, the son goodness. of Sam. We need to cover him at some point. Interesting. Another little trivia here. 1970 through 2000 is called the golden age of serial murder. 82% of all serial killers in the 20th century killed during that time period. I've heard that before. Why do you think that is? I don't. Do you think because there wasn't as much like DNA education, like there wasn't enough forensic science back then? So people, there were more killers getting away with things? Or are killers getting away with things now because they know that all this science stuff is out there. I guess they weren't getting away with it because they were getting caught because that's how they found out there were so many. So you could Why look at it two that? ways. Yeah. Are there less serial killers or are there just the same or more now because the serial killers have gotten smart, <laughs> smarter, mm. I guess. You, I mean, who knows, right? Police started interviewing the street workers, each and every one. Can, can you even wrap your mind around that job? because the I, number you gave me was it was huge <laughs> they started paying attention also a little attention to the johns the problem was the sex workers were too afraid to speak to the police like you had mentioned earlier they yeah. were afraid of their pimps and afraid of the police i mean if they talked to them they would be admitting to being sex workers who had been picked up by the johns and that would risk them being arrested because it was illegal right yeah, and they can't lose their job right now. Just like you said, they all have a backstory. It's a big risk to put food on the table or who knows. Right. Detectives then looked at arrest records of the Johns. There were two that stood out. One was a pimp and the other was arrested because of two separate complaints by two sex workers. In both cases, the women stated that the man would not let them out of his car. They oh, were kidnapped. Scary sexually assaulted, and robbed. The arrested John was Richard Cottingham, an average guy who was married with three children. Ooh, it just has like shivers down my spine. It's just... Sorry. He lived in New Jersey, but worked as a computer operator at Blue Cross and Blue Shield. I oh. mean, a total average... John? <laughs> total average, average Joe. <laughs> this is an average John, I guess. <laughs> We shouldn't laugh at that, <laughs> but it, it came to my mind, too, clearly. He denied the charges. Yes, he admitted to picking up the women. It was consensual sex. She was a sex worker. He picked her up for sex. He didn't do anything wrong. The women did not show up on the day of the trial. Oh no victim, gosh. no crime. Charges were dismissed. This was the age where police departments did not share information, as we've talked about before. And there was no shared system to ID suspects. Maybe that's why that golden age. Sorry, I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm still hooked on that, apparently. But I'm sure that totally fed into it because serial killers, for the most part, don't stay in one area. They move around. Yeah, now we have all of those different programs that 
right codis just being one of them like it's mm-hmm. being the big one yeah sorry that just is still sticking with me no one I, i'm sure that has a this has a big bearing on that on may 5th 1980 when a dead woman was found under the bed in room 132 of the quality inn in new jersey just 32 minutes from new york there was no connection made to the murders on 42nd street 19-year-old Valerie Street, the victim, had come to New York from Miami a few days before. She had been seen getting into a car driven by a man. Her body was found with her hands handcuffed behind her. Traces of an adhesive were found around her mouth. She had cuts on her body and had been manually strangled. Mm. A latent print was found on a part of the handcuff, but there were no matches in the New Jersey system. Now, had there been an exchange of information, because remember, this guy had been arrested as a John, so his fingerprints would be on file in New York. Isn't that crazy? And that's just 32 minutes away. Yeah, and I just, but besides the fingerprint, there's nothing tying these two cases together, three cases together at all. I mean, just women in a hotel room, but the others didn't have hands or a head. The one did, but she had cuts all over her body, meaning that she had been tortured. So right, that's that's that... one that's one thing. But you're right. There's so many murders going on. And so, you know, right. why tie those two together anyway? Right. And like, that's such a drastic thing. That one case in New York, they didn't have hands or a head. And then this one, yes, was abused. But like, yeah, why would you head and had why would you why would you tie them? together plus she had her hands handcuffed where the others didn't you know exactly then one detective remembered the murder of mary ann carr a young nurse whose body was found in the parking lot of the same quality inn hotel two years earlier witnesses had seen her arguing with a man the day before her body was found it was evident that she had been handcuffed she also had adhesive residue around her mouth same mo as valerie Did they have a serial killer? Back on 42nd Street, so back in New York, (laughs) there's still mayhem. Police are accused of doing nothing because most of the victims are sex workers or homeless. But on the other side of that, because of budget cuts, 5,000 police had been laid off. Wow. Less police on the streets. Crime was out of control. Mm. There was Even a pamphlet. I just thought this was funny, sad. Um, There was a pamphlet produced by the police at the time for tourists. On the front was, quote, Welcome to Fear City. You're kidding. Below those words was a picture of the Grim Reaper. (gasps) Inside the pamphlet was a survival guide to the city. You're kidding. Followed by, good luck. (laughs) Can you imagine, like... Hey, honey, let's go into the city for a romantic anniversary dinner. For the weekend. (laughs) Hand you this pamphlet as you walk into the city. (laughs) Enjoy dinner. Don't get mugged. Very few actually braved New York at this time. So the city decided to crack down on crime by shutting down the sex businesses on 42nd Street. And they used anything and everything to do so. And I kind of chuckle there because I'll give you an example. A business would use the next door business's electricity, okay? They were tied in together for some reason. 
Then they were busted. And so now they have no electricity. So what they do? Well, they lit candles to light up the business, right? Well, then they were closed down because they didn't have an open flame permit. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So they were really looking at every little thing they could. They got that down. nitpicky to close things yeah. down. Yes. Remember the porn king? <laughs> How could I forget? <laughs> He compared this time to the witch hunts in Massachusetts. He was arrested 12 times and finally jailed for tax evasion. You can't compare that to the witch hunts because they would be captured once and then they'd be burnt at the stake. He had 12 chances, so he's worse (laughs) than a cat. He is worse than a cat. That's saying something for me. On May 22nd, 1980... Leslie O'Dell, a 19-year-old runaway, was picked up by a man outside of the Port Authority. She was hungry and lost, and an average-looking man offered to help her. He was friendly, said his name was Tommy. He flashed a wad of cash and offered to take her to the bus station in New Jersey. But first, would she like to join him for a drink? While at the bar, Leslie became very light-headed and passed out. When she awoke, she found herself at... The Quality Inn in New Jersey. Shoot. She was handcuffed. She was beaten, tortured, and assaulted for hours. Finally, the man took the handcuffs off of her as he pointed a gun at her head. Now, somehow Leslie was able to get the gun out of his hands, but when she pulled the trigger, she found the gun had no bullets. Oh, no. By this time, the man had a knife. She screamed so loudly that it brought someone to the door, the hotel door. As the man held the knife to her, she opened the door just inches. And then very discreetly, she ran her hand along her throat, showing that she needed help. She is brave and smart. Yeah. The police were called. When the man heard the sirens, he made a run for it, but was caught. In the bag he was carrying was a roll of tape, handcuffs, bondage restraints, and sedatives. Mm. Even with these incriminating items, the man, by the way, Richard Cottingham, said that he did not do anything wrong, that the woman Mm. was there voluntarily. He was arrested. Meanwhile, in New York, their investigation into the torso killer had stalled. They had no idea that just across the river, the man they were searching for had been arrested. I mean, just think about that. It just blows your mind. Yeah. They just had no idea. That's, that is crazy. Back to New Jersey. <laughs> they had Cottingham in custody, but didn't have enough evidence to convict him. What they needed were more survivors to step forward. Things in the U.S. were changing at this time. Because of the feminists and the women's movement, police were now arresting Johns, and the rape laws have changed. Women felt more comfortable sharing their stories of assault with police. Three victims actually stepped forward. The first had been attacked on March 22, 1978, the second on October 12, 1978, and the third on May 12, 1980. The women all shared similar stories. They had been picked up by Cottingham, who had shown them cash and offered them money. They had been taken to a bar for drinks, after which they felt very drowsy and eventually passed out. Mm. The women were beaten. One was bit. All were sexually assaulted. Two had been left for dead. Cottingham was put into a lineup. Okay, now this was so crazy because 
He had shaved all his facial hair. And uh, a lot of times men look different when they when they do that. Well, yeah, yeah. This guy looked completely different. Like So he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, he did. Yes, he did. But these women obviously were more intelligent than me because or more in tune than me because they were able to identify him. Oh, my gosh. As their assaultant, even though he looked totally different. New York detectives reading the paper see that Cottingham was arrested and they notice the similarities in the New Jersey cases and the New York cases. The two departments finally started working together. When investigators searched Cottingham's house, they found a secret room in the basement. The room held pornographic artwork, adhesive tape, books on S&M, women's clothing, jewelry, and a purse in a vault, which happened to all belong to the victims. This was his trophy room. A case was built against Cottingham based on, quote, signature pattern and the testimony of the surviving victims and the items found in his house. Cottingham, also known as the Torso Killer, his first trial was on May 19, 1981, where all the evidence was presented. Cottingham insisted on taking the stand, which was very stupid. He said that he did not do the crime he was accused of doing, that the police had planted the evidence, and the women were all lying. They were just saying what the police wanted them to say. <laughs> Whoa, great defense, right? Oh, my. The jury was not swayed. They found him guilty. On May Good. 31st, 1984, Cottingham was at his second trial, this one in New York. Again, the hmm. jury found him guilty. Between New Jersey and New York... Cottingham was sentenced to 200 consecutive years. Oh, boy. The torso killer sat in jail, speaking to no one about the murders until March 2017, when he received a letter with emoji stickers all over it. The letter was from Jennifer Weiss. Oh, the daughter you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Dita's daughter. Jennifer had grown up wanting to know who her birth mother was. She had been adopted into a very loving family, but she never forgot about the mother she'd never met. In 2002, when Jennifer was 24, she finally tracked down that she had been dropped off at the Children's Home Society of New Jersey when she was just two weeks old. Hmm. She was told that the Children's Home had something for her. Hoping that she would finally be able to unite with the birth mother, Jennifer rushed to the home. All her hopes were dashed when a person at the home gave her a handful of newspaper clippings dating back to the late 70s into the 80s. I'm sorry, the person said. Your mother was killed by a serial killer. Oh my gosh. I hope they told her with much more love than you just shared. (laughs) (laughs) It took Jennifer another decade before she could bring herself to write to her mother's killer, Richard Cunningham, in the New Jersey State Prison. That was the aforementioned letter with all the stickers on it. A month later, she received a three-page letter from Cottingham, basically telling her how sorry he was for the pain he had caused her. Two months later, July 2017, she was added to Cottingham's visitor list. Oh my gosh. On their first visit, they were divided by a sheet of plexiglass. Cottingham, age 70, had been imprisoned for 37 years by this time. He was an imposing-looking man. He weighed about 300 pounds and had a head of white hair and a scraggly white beard. I'm telling you, when he walked down the hall, you'll see when he walks down the hall in the Netflix show, he looks just 
we were talk we were talking about Santa Claus earlier in this episode when I mentioned <laughs> the peep show. <laughs> well, guess what? Santa Claus showed. I mean, he looks like he would be a perfect Santa Claus in the Macy Day Parade. Oh my gosh, that's really weird that we were talking about. I was talking about Santa earlier. <laughs> I'll have to pull up a picture of this guy. Jennifer sat across from him and had two questions. Did you know my mother and where is her skull? She discovered from their conversation that her mother and Cottingham actually knew each other. He had been a client of hers for two years before he killed her. Oh, that makes it worse. I know it does, doesn't it? Wanting to find out more, Jennifer visited Cottingham 30 times in three years. She befriended him. And by doing that, Cottingham opened up to her. Through their conversations, Cottingham admitted killing five teens, all previously unsolved cases. In 1974, he killed Mary Ann Pryor, 17, and Lorraine Kelly, 17. From 1968 to 1969, he killed Jackie Harp, 13, Irene Blaze, 18, and Denise Peleska, 15. These are just babies. uh, Yeah. And these were all murders that were close to his house. What they say is a lot of times serial killers will start in close proximity to where they're comfortable. So their house or wherever. And then when they get more comfortable, their hunting ground kind of expands. Mm -hmm. He admitted to the murders of the two women at the Travel Inn Hotel on 42nd Street. He said that after he killed the second woman, he cut off their heads and their hands, then left the hotel walking around at 3 a.m. carrying a bag with their hands and their head in it. He was even stopped by a policeman, but told him that he was looking for a place to eat. Cottingham then placed the heads in his trunk, went back to the hotel and started the fire. He told Jennifer where he had buried the heads but police found nothing when they searched the area. So he had rented out that room. So why wasn't his name on file? Had he used like a fake name? Yeah, he he used Carl something. Oh, you said that earlier. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. I thought I just solved the case. (laughs) (laughs) Why the police take so long? (laughs) I mean. He wrote his name down. (laughs) Beth solved it within one cocktail. What's going on? He felt remorse, but then went on to say that he had committed at least 80, eight zero perfect murders. And that almost doesn't surprise me because their heads were cut off and their hands. Like that's not, and there was no question in his cutting. Like there was, it was very precise. So that almost as terrible as that Like sounds. he had done it before. Yeah. Many like, times before. He knew what to do. He wasn't nervous. He even talked to a cop when he had heads in his bag. Like he admitted to killing every other week for 13 years. Now do the math on that. Oh, and I and can't. I'll do it I'm for you because <laughs> you'll take forever. But that comes to 85 to 100 murders. Oh my gosh. It was a psychological game for him. Any woman did whatever he wanted them to do. He was in control. It was godlike. Jennifer said, quote, he had a sex drive that couldn't be satisfied, unquote. He had gotten away with many murders. He probably thought he was invincible. He could have whatever kind of sex he wanted at night, then go home, take a shower, wake up like nothing had happened. That's right. He was married and even had kids. So like he'd go spend the night doing these, you know, probably stay in New York because the Blue Cross Blue Shield office building was 
very close to Times Square. So he'd get off of work and he'd just go do his thing. I don't mean this poorly, but it's like two full-time jobs. I mean, that's crazy. For sure. When did he sleep? Yeah. I know. Or then what did he do? He left the victims tied up in the room and then he went to work? And then just go home and like, yeah. I mean, or did he take that time off or what the hell? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, because these were taking days. Like he wasn't just... Yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. In all actuality, Cottingham doesn't really want to help bring closure to anyone. But because of their friendship, he wants to help Jennifer. And as far as Jennifer, she said that she became friends with Cottingham for her mother's sake and for her quest. I'm doing this for the mothers who lost their daughters and my own mother. And for these girls that their lives were ended one night or day by Richard playing God, said Jennifer. I'm not going to rest easy until we figure out who they were. So that's why I do what I do. Wow. Just some interesting info. One of the biggest things to help, quote, clean up 42nd Street was actually AIDS. Information about AIDS, true and false, I remember this time, came out in 1981. The live sex shows stopped completely, and many of the sex shops and massage parlors shut their doors. Hmm. In 1976, there were 147 sex spots on the deuce. In 1982, there were 74. Oh. And crime was down 7.9%. In 1993, Disney and the city partnered up to buy the new Amsterdam Theater, which was set for demolition. Time and 30 to $40 million made Times Square what it is today. Tourists flocked there to take in the sights. But some old timers say that it's become too, quote, Disney-fied. <laughs> it was much more quaint from the 40s to the 90s. But the truth is that there were a lot of lives ruined during that time between the drugs, the sex, and the crime. Heck, the life expectancy of a sex worker was seven years. Wow. From the time she hit the streets, seven years. Yeah. Many of them were killed. And no one was the wiser because they were not identified. Mm. Just as the second victim in room 417 at the Travel Inn Hotel. She has never been identified. The following is from the end of the Netflix documentary because there are still unknown victims out there. If you believe a missing loved one was a victim of Richard Cottingham, please contact the NYPD Crime Stoppers at crimestoppers at nypdonline.org. And I will post that on our website. That is just horrible that there's that many unsolved crimes and they all could just be his. And they're still searching to this day. Mm. I mean, to me, (laughs) 1980s don't seem that far away. (laughs) But I mean, it's way back there. (laughs) Hey, I was born in 1880, not 1880. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe in your previous life, not in this one. I am the ghost of Beth. <laughs> 1989 is when I was born. So I was still born in the 80s. <laughs> Man, that's horrible. Crazy, wasn't it? I didn't mm-hmm. know. I did. I really, I'd heard of the torso killer, but I didn't know very much about it. So and I'm- he looks just like Santa Claus. I looked up a picture while you were talking and yeah, he looks like Santa is in prison. He's a big guy. With a white beard and white hair. He 
Yeah, they described him as having a scraggly beard. I didn't really notice that it was scraggly. I just noticed it was white. I just noticed Santa Claus walking down the hall. Yeah. So weird. So weird. Uh, Okay. Tell us about that pirate booty. (laughs) Okay. Well, my story is in New York City as well. We had the whole state of New York, and we both covered New York City. (laughs) Well. So I have a little more New York history for you. I really loved researching for this episode. I love New York. As mom stated, I've been there multiple times, many times. Alex and I, we used to try to go at least twice a year with COVID and all that crap that kind of stopped. But eventually, we will be going back. So this was really fun for me. Plus... I think you've been the one responsible for most of the New York hauntings. I think besides Amityville, I think you've done a lot of the New York hauntings. I have. I have. This is like my first time (laughs) It was officially my turn. Okay. So anyway, we are going to start on a short little crooked street in New York City, Gay Street. To be honest, there is no clear reason why it was named Gay Street. There's only been assumptions It was named in the 1800s, so probably the name of a landowner or something like that. Mm -hmm. Rumors were it was named after Sidney Howard Gay, who was an abolitionist and an editor of the National Anti-Slavery Standard newspaper, but he would have only been 15 at the time the street was created, so I know he went on to do big things. But he didn't do big things at that time. (laughs) I don't think a street would have been named after him as a 15-year-old. So today, the little street connects Waverly Place and Christopher Street and sits in Greenwich Village. It's just ironic that it's named Gay Street since Christopher Street is basically, it basically became the main street of gay New York in the 70s. Okay. So a lot of the gay community is around that area. And then this is Gay Street. So it's kind of, but it wasn't named for that purpose at all. Exactly. It's kind of funny. It's just ironic. Yeah, very ironic. The street is located just a few blocks northwest from Washington Square Park, or as Alex and I call it, the Rat Park. (laughs) I know there are rats in New York. We always see a bunch, but I specifically call this the Rat Park. And I know Tompkins Square Park is known for their rats, but I will never forget my first time walking through Washington Square Park. We decided to go at night and the arch was all lit up. It was very romantic. It was really pretty. And as we're walking up, this cat like runs by us into this grassy area just off the path. And we start chatting about Annie and Blake and our pups and how like how we can't imagine them being in the city. They'd probably want to eat everything on the sidewalk. And we were just kind of talking about our dogs. And we look over and that thing that ran by us was now on the trash can. And by golly, it was not a dog or a cat. It was a rat. And it was literally the size of my dog. Oh. It literally gave me the heebie. Oh, my. It gave me the heebie jeebies. It scurried into the grass, and we heard all these other scurrying things in the grass. And oh, I love New York, but. That is one thing I do not think I could get used to at all. You know what really what really gets me on rats is their tails. Ooh. <laughs> think about the princess. It's like those creatures in the Princess Bride, um, the R-O-U-S's, the rodents of unusual size. You remember <laughs> yeah, their right. long, disgusting <laughs> tails? <laughs> <laughs> Sweet dreams for us tonight. 
back to ghosts. Okay. So Washington Square Park, Beth and Alex call it Rat Park, moving on. Back to Gay Street. The land was originally owned, and I'm talking like way before skyscrapers and before New York was a bustling city, back when it was owned by the Dutch. Wouter von Twiller. <laughs> Added an accent. Don't know if I needed an accent. That's it. Would it be Wouter? Walter. Okay. W-O-U-T-E-R. Oh, Wouter. 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 He owned the land and he had a brewery. He had a brewery that sat there. And then later on, there was a morgue that was added. Do you hear those dogs? No. Nope. <laughs> Sorry, I got distracted. My neighbor's bloodhounds. They're literally like the bumpuses hounds over there. They are so. They are literally, loud. they look exactly like them. And they have three of them. It's like the bumpuses over there. I can't hear it. Okay. Well, Wooter, Water, whatever, Walter, whatever you want to call him. He on the land. There was a brewery that sat there and later on a morgue was added to the area as well. So you have alcohol and death. It's our podcast summed up on Gay Street. <laughs> we don't have true crime in there. We're about to. <laughs> kind of. Like I said, it was very nearby to Washington Square Park, which was built in 1826. And all the Who's in New York, like the Who's Who, the Who's, like Whoville. Wow, I'm never going to be able to tell this story. All the Who's. I meant to say Who's Who, but the Who's of Whoville came out. I don't know why. All the Who's Who lived near Washington Square Park. So all the like really fancy people lived near Washington Square Park. And they needed a place for all their fancy horses. So little old Gay Street was created. So it wasn't ever really a street. It was made for stables. Okay. It's literally like, it's really short. It's just this crooked little street, but it had stables on it. Okay. Okay. Fast forward to the 1830s and the city just keeps growing and growing. So they widen the street and they start building more houses. And even though it's been widened, it's still a one way street. It's still very small. And this is where history, I just love history so much. So it was stables. Then it became homes for the servants of the fancy people and the who's who that lived and all the who's that lived near Washington Square Park. And most of these servants back then were African-Americans. And then they started to update the street and the black residents mostly remained and it actually became home for many black musicians. And the whole street was filled with music, artists, writers. And again, nice. it's just just like a tiny little street. I don't think I can emphasize that enough. Like if you pull up Google Maps and look up Gay Street in New York, you'll see it's really small. Then came the 20s, the 1920s and the horrible prohibition. I say that with sarcasm. But Gay Street was so small and kind of hidden. So it was ah. the perfect place for speakeasies uh-huh one in particular is where i'm going to share my story at 12 gay street this speakeasy was named the pirate's den uh-huh pirate's booty ding 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 there's where my drink came from i think there were two speakeasies on the street the other i think was named the flower pot <laughs> <laughs> i think i'd prefer the pirate's I just don't even know how they would name that. That name is just, you want to go to the flower pot tonight? Shh, shh, don't tell anybody. 
We're going to the flower pot. It just sounds... Okay. But the pirate's den was at 12 Gay Street. The building was owned by the mayor, Mayor Jimmy Walker. And he was a character. He was kind of a party animal, from what I understand. He was known as a very dapper dresser. He had a very large personality. He was a lawyer, a politician. He was only in office until 1932 because his partying and his sex scandals kind of caught up with him. (laughs) And a lot of those scandals, we can assume, happened here in the pirate's den. Now, I don't know if after the pirate's den was closed, he did this, or if it was during the time the speakeasy was open, but Mr. Walker actually had his girlfriend, a chorus girl, Betty Compton, living here at 12 Gay Street. He did eventually marry her, but this was kind of his home away from home, if you could call Mm -hmm. it that. So down in the basement underground was the pirate's den, and it was the it place. All the Who's and Whoville were here. (laughs) Politicians, the stars, they all partied there. And these guests, these Who's, are still partying there to this day. (gasps) According to the Bowery Boys, it's not Mr. Jimmy Walker or his mistress, Compton, that is seen here, but just their party guests. (laughs) Hey, it was a good party. They want to linger. Shadows are seen going up and down the stairs. People will just appear and then just vanish. Sounds of glassware are heard, of course, and my favorite, the smell of fried onions fills the home when no one is cooking. Okay, maybe I do want to go to the flower pot. (laughs) I guess that's their drunk food of choice, but fried onions is smell it's so random i prefer mcdonald's chicken nuggets and french fries but (laughs) we all have our vices i guess there are so many different spirits seen randomly throughout the house i don't think they seem very intelligent and i don't mean that they're dumb i just mean like it seems like they're just residual like there's a young woman seen pacing the sidewalk in front of the home and there's another young girl spirit that is seen only on the first floor stairwell. There's another young girl, she's described as a pretty girl, dressed in 30s attire. So are these full body apparitions then? I mean, they can see them. Yeah. There's also a foreign diplomat, and he is seen to be very worried and anxious, and he is pacing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. How do they know he's a foreign diplomat? How he's dressed. Oh, okay. In uniform. I think maybe he partied a little too hard. I think he's a little paranoid (laughs) and he doesn't want to get caught. Uh, He's just a nervous man. Poor guy. Footsteps and the floorboards creaking are a very normal sound that was heard in the house throughout the night. Perhaps it was a spirit sneaking to the kitchen for those fried onions. Fried onions. My favorite haunt of 12 Gay Street is actually known as the Gay Street Phantom. He's an older man dressed in some very fancy attire. He wears a top hat and an opera cape, and he is seen at the front door. He looks like he's heading out for a night on the town. He's also been seen in the windows from outsiders. Some say that this dapper-dressed man is Jimmy Walker. Regardless, this fancy-dressed man has been seen by many of the homeowners throughout the years. Interestingly enough... The man who saw him the most was homeowner Frank Paris. Do you know who he is? 
Frank Paris, he provides the scariest part of this story for me, if you ask me. He was a puppeteer. (laughs) And he had a puppet crafting workshop in his basement and a puppet theater upstairs. (laughs) Ghosts and now puppets, marionettes. I'm a real boy now. (laughs) Frank Paris invented or built, I don't know, how you'd phrase that, gave birth to Howdy Doody there at 12 Gay Street. Oh, I have a picture signed by Howdy Doody. Well, he was born at 12 Gay Street. (laughs) So if you're ever in New York, take a short walk through Gay Street. Check out 12 Gay Street in particular. It's, like I said, a very short, small street, but you can't miss it. Number 12, it literally looks like it's been plucked from a Dickens novel. It has exposed brick. It has a lar- it has these large hanging lanterns and these really pretty colored shutters and flower boxes on the windows. A neighbor, Randy Credico, was quoted in the Intelligencer, a New York magazine, saying, quote, I wouldn't go in there right now. It's legendary that ghosts live there. That place would be like moving into The Shining. Ooh, ooh. So I guess the home was totally gutted in 2009 and was put on the market for $4.2 million. <gasps> Holy smokes. That's just pocket change. We'll just ask Anna Delvey to put it on credit for us. <laughs> but I couldn't find any record if it was purchased or anything. Like I did some digging and... It just kept saying that the last time it was purchased was in 2007, but then it was gutted and put on the market in 2009. So I wonder if they gutted it, put it on the market, and then took it off the market. I don't know. Right. But yeah, it's a mystery. <laughs> wow. So you can come up from the park after you run away from the rats and then go up mm-hmm, the crooked mm-hmm. little street. Yep. <laughs> okay. I have a question. Okay. Think about this. If some spirits have so much strength that they can make themselves not just a shadowy apparition, but a full bodied apparition, right? So you can tell what they're wearing, you know, like you describe the girl wearing 30s garbs or something. What's to say that you're walking down the sidewalk and somebody passes you? What's to say that wasn't a ghost? I know we have this conversation all the time. But like I said, I don't think that these are intelligent spirits because if they're seen, it's not like they try to communicate. They're not trying to communicate with the homeowners that are there. So I think that say that foreign diplomat, maybe something really traumatic happened to him or maybe he had like a really great time there. And that image for some reason is just replayed over and over for some reason. I don't know why. But that foreign diplomat is not intelligent. He's not communicating. Or even that fancy dapper dresser. Like, yes, he's a full body apparition. But all these homeowners see him. They see him like put his cloak on his top hat and he grabs his keys and starts heading out the door. Oh, that's crazy. He's not really there. Like he's not. It's not like they can say, hey, excuse me, sir. And he turn and look at them like they say, excuse me, sir. And he would just keep walking out the door. So I no, no walking through the door. Right. Exactly. That that would make it even scarier. So I don't I don't know. Again, this is my I'm no Zach Biggins, but that's just how I kind of perceived this. Now those intelligent spirits that are communicating back to you, you ask a question and they talk back to you. I don't know if they necessarily show themselves in full apparition form. It's kind of like 
I wonder if they can only do one or the other. Because can you imagine an intelligent spirit that can communicate to you, showing you a full apparition? So then you have the dapper dude dressed to go to the opera and you say, oh, excuse me, sir. And he turns and he looks at you and he says, I'm just going out. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't you've never heard that story of a full apparition being intelligent to you. Maybe we have. I don't know. Well, they answer on the spirit box and stuff. Right. But they're not showing you themselves. I'm saying you can do one or the other. Oh, Oh, perhaps you are correct. I'm thinking maybe those spirits are like on their own plane. Like they don't even mm-hmm. know that you're there. Yeah. They're just, you know, exactly. and, and the guy walking back and forth, maybe he doesn't even know he's dead and he's confused. And so he's walking mm-hmm. back and forth trying to figure out what's going on, you know? Yeah. But like, why do you smell fried onions? And not just fried onions, but in other homes where people say like, they smell the smell of bacon in the morning, but nobody's cooking anything. Right. That's so crazy to me. You know what happened to me? True story. So I worked for the church at one time and my office was on the upstairs, uh, the second floor of the building and the building used to be. I hated going um, into your office. I hated going into this building. I sensed so many things in this building. It was. There were definitely oh spirits. Uh, it used to be a convent. Where I worked was actually, they tore the wall down. It was actually two bedrooms, but they tore the wall down. So I had a nice, I loved my office. I never felt scared there, but I definitely felt like there, I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There were definitely yeah. odd noises. And, and I just had the feeling that I was not alone whenever I was alone <laughs> up there um, working. But one time, I think we had just finished for a meeting. I was heading up to and this is during the day, I was heading up to my office and I was in the stairwell there. And all of a sudden, I smelled roses, like a huge drift of roses. And I could identify it as roses. There was not a rose in sight. There were no roses around. But I know I smelled roses. I just don't understand. Because like, I've smelled your mom. I've smelled grandmama's perfume. She right. had a very specific perfume. We've talked about that on the podcast before. And there have been times where I've walked into a room. It's been a while actually since she's done that. But I used to be able to walk into a room and just smell her and know she was there. I could sense she was there and I would smell that perfume. How does that happen? Like how do I you don't know. smell I don't bacon know. cooking, roses or perfume or I mean, there's so many of those stories out there. I just think that's so crazy. Especially perfume. There's so many stories. And cigar smoke. Cigar smoke. That's another thing. Yeah. Or just, or or here is another sense. Just the sound of clinking glasses. Mm-hmm. That's a sound we have not been able to make for a while. I, well, I know. That's so sad, <laughs> mom. Bringing no it back down. No clinking glasses. Oh, well. Well, you're busy. I'm busy. We're all just busy. Hey guys, sorry to do this to you, but talking about busy, starting in June, going into July and going into August, we will be putting out episodes every other week. Mom's doing this for me because I will have all three boys home with me all day, every day. No school. Mommy duty comes first and researching gruesome murders and haunted places cannot be happening in front of my children. Some of those documentaries I won't be able to watch until they go to bed. <laughs> so we are going to be putting out episodes every other week starting in right. June. Right. But then we will go back to your regular programming of every Monday, <laughs> getting your killer hangover fix. 
But we still have Patreon. We'll still be doing Patreon. We'll still be doing ghost adventure reviews on there, giving out some dudes on there. That's been really fun. I've got an interview lined up. Some really cool stuff going on over on Patreon. All right. Don't forget to leave those reviews for us, friends. And you can find a link on to how to purchase us a drink and get your shout out. Like I said, in the description of this episode or on any of our socials, all of the sources and photos from this episode will be on our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com. Email us, message us, get in contact with us, tell us what you want us to share. We love getting recommendations from you guys. And don't forget about the drawing of the names on the 1st of June. Don't forget to leave those reviews on Apple iTunes and shoot us proof that you did. Next week is episode 110. And we are Holy going to be doing bizarreties, bizarre stories, some more bizarreties. Yes, I'm excited. I am too. All right, mom. Another good one. Yeah, it was. It was sad, but true. And I loved your ghost stories of the who's Thanks. in Whoville. The who's in Whoville. <laughs> Cheers, mama. Cheers. Love you, kid. <laughs>